0: The Crown Season 5 is here. And we
1: recap it all, including what's true and what's not.
0: And best of all, we do it with one of our very favourite people in the whole world, H. Alan Scott.
1: I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent.
0: And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a Royal Watcher based in the US.
1: And this is Newsweek's Royal Report.
0: Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. And hello to our very special guest, H. Allen Scott. H. Allen Scott is our writer, comedian, and host of the Parting Shot podcast, as well as a Golden Girls podcast. What is that podcast?
2: Out on the Lanai.
0: Yes, Out on the Lanai. (laughs) And like us, H. Allen is an avid pop culture aficionado, obviously. And we could not imagine a better person to join us to talk about season five of The Crown H. Allen, welcome to the show. We're so glad to have you here today.
2: Literally, you guys have told me, told me to be quiet so many times. because I've been so excited to talk because I, A, I love both of you and I love this podcast, but also B, I also love the Royals. Like more than pop culture, The like I have been literally, I have been reading Tina Brown's Diana Chronicles in prep for season five and I've read it before. So I'm saying oh. reread. I'm rereading.
0: Yes. We should also mention that we all look great today. And H. Allen is also dressed for the occasion in sequins. Um, I have a fascinator on. Jack is literally wearing a tuxedo right now. And uh, we'll post photos on social so you can see how seriously we are taking this season of The Crown. It's
1: basically Oscar night dress code, and yes. it's fantastic. You don't have to tell me quite twice. I love getting dressed up in smart clothes, so um, yeah, it's it's going to be great fun. Exactly. But 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 <laughs> let's start off by just giving an overview of what happens during season five. So it opens in 1991 with the Queen, now 65 years old. Margaret Thatcher is out of Downing Street, and the new Prime Minister John Major is in. For those who don't remember him, he was a kind—he was the boring guy. He was boring. He loved cricket. He was very straight. Um, and if Charles has his way, very monotone. Yeah, 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 yeah. If if Charles has his way, the Queen could soon be uh, shifting roles as well, because he has an idea that she might abdicate the throne in order to let him in. This is in the show, but uh, he is huge popular at the time, and the people are seen to be wanting him to take over, uh, whereas she is worried that she's getting old and out of touch, and she gets fixated with this idea that the public should pay to repair the royal yacht.
0: Yes, meanwhile... Philip strikes up a close friendship with the very young and very pretty wife of his godson, Penny, a.k.a. Countess Mountbatten of Burma. Fergie is caught by the tabloids having her toes uh, played with by another man and is cheating on her husband and tells her mom she wants to be with that other man. And Margaret is seething over the fact that the queen is giving her kids way more leeway than she ever got to have when she was young and in love with Peter Townsend.
1: And then we get to the main event, and the main event of this series is, of course, Charles and Diana, and their relationship, their marriage, is disintegrating before our very eyes. Um, He is still having his affair with Camilla, uh, calling Camilla at home. There's tape recordings of private conversations about tampons flying about the place, and Diana has (laughs) fallen in love with a heart surgeon called Haznat Khan. Um, Both of uh, Charles and Diana are of course spilling the beans in public, Charles cooperating with journalist Jonathan Dimbleby and Diana gives a highly controversial interview to a journalist called Martin Bashir. Um, who has been deceitful in the way that he obtained it Uh, on top of all this the crown obviously loves its symbolism and there is a as in real life a great fire at windsor castle which destroys 115 rooms do you see what they did there the family is on fire the castle is on fire it's all coming together as it always does Metaphors. (laughs) Metaphors. <laughs> it's the name of the game.
0: So we're going to pause at this point with the recap, because there are some side stories we're also going to recap in a moment. But just when it comes to the big events, H. Allen, how did you feel about this? H- how did you feel the show did so far this season?
2: I uh, obsessed. I think this is a perfect spot. To st- literally this moment in history for pop culture people, for royal people, this is like Like, the midterms might be happening right now, but I don't care about the midterms. I'm staying up late tonight to watch The Crown because I'm so obsessed with this moment in history. I don't even care who's in Congress. Republicans, take over the world. I don't care. I have season five of The Crown, and I'm fine.
1: I feel like the 1990s was the decade when the royal family just had too much coffee and they were in like this perpetual frenzy, (laughs) the likes of which we haven't really seen until, you know, the last few years.
2: And And you guys can probably tell just based on everything about me, but I love a bit of pageantry and drama. And I, (laughs) I remember as a kid, and I think I was probably like eight or nine when all this was happening. And I was obsessed. I was obsessed with this sweet old lady who was running this country that I knew as a kid. Of course, I know now she's not running the country or wasn't, but I was obsessed with her. I was obsessed with how beautiful Diana was. And I always thought she'd be like a fun mom. And then I always knew that I would hate Prince Charles as a father. So like, I literally tried to imagine myself in this family when I was a kid because I hated my own family. Spoiler, but I, <laughs> I was, I was just. This moment in history is so like I have such fond memories of it because I was
1: literally daydreaming as a kid about all of this drama. And so, this is the time when it really disintegrated and they all crashed hard. So, you've got. It starts with. It starts at a point where Charles genuinely was quite popular in Britain at the time. And then Andrew Morton's biography of Diana comes out, the affair with Camilla, public knowledge. It's just carnage from that moment on. And, of course, this is Charles's big, big crash when the public really turned against him, just like you're saying. What made him so popular? Do you know? Like, before
2: all the crash happened, like. Because I always thought. I mean, I always thought people just sort of were mediocre on him and everything was about Diana. Like, what made him so popular before this moment?
0: According to The Crown, it's just that the Queen had been overstaying her welcome, perhaps. She was doing the Victoria thing. The Victoria effect, I think, is actually the name of the debut episode of season five of, like, Maybe you don't need to have this job forever. Maybe, much like certain Supreme Court justices who shall not be named in the US, Clarence Thomas, maybe you've been there too long and you're not doing enough, and maybe it's time to leave. And, you know, maybe you're getting a little stodgy. You know, you used to be kind of glamorous, but now you kind of just seem old and out of touch. And gosh, you're really obsessed with this yacht of yours, and you really want the public to pay for your yacht? You know?
2: Is that true, though? Was she really obsessed? Because, like, part of me, because I mean, I've read a lot on the Royals, and I feel like. And I get also, like I said before, the need for drama and like the need to hype up certain moments in history, maybe more than what they actually were. Was she actually obsessed with like the public paying for this, this upkeep of the
1: yacht? Like, was, is it true? I think that the royals loved the yacht. I think the fixation with the public paying for it is, and also this idea that the queen specifically was fixated on that is actually more about the crown trying to create this framing that because um, one of the stories of the 90s, just stepping out of the crown of the real life 90s, is that this is, was when Charles became obsessed with slimming down the monarchy. There was a recession in Britain at the time linked to, actually funnily enough, linked to Europe, uh, linked to the ERM. Um, and Charles wanted. To, Charles felt that it looked really bad to have all these royals on the Buckingham Palace balcony um, every year. And it looked like they were living in the lap of luxury while ordinary people were suffering. So it, I think Framing is to create of that whole section is to basically say. Charles was really popular before the Diana stuff became public knowledge um, and uh, so that's point number one. Number two that has implications for succession I think that's the framing they're trying to create by uh, with this device that the Queen might abdicate um, they're just trying to link it to the idea of succession because obviously that's what we're going through right now so I don't think that the Queen more than other members of the royal family specifically had a fixation with the yacht or the public paying for it but they did like It like right now, if you fast forward to now, they are actually like actively turning down a yacht that a particular journalist from the Daily Telegraph and some Tory MPs are trying to foist on them because they don't, (laughs) they, they actually don't want it. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I think basically they loved the yacht. And going back to your question about Charles as well, why was he so popular? Part of it, in all honesty, I think is that there's a baseline level of popularity that all royals start off with. Um, it's kind of like the reverse of being a politician or an ordinary person. Like They start at the very top and fall if they mess things up, whereas an ordinary person it starts at zero and has to work to develop a public profile.
0: And I would specifically say that there are parallels between the royals' popularity and what we see in the entertainment industry in Hollywood and so on. Because in a lot of ways, it's like, how sexy are they? How glamorous are they? How good do they look in their clothes? Um, Are they people that we can project our romantic fantasies onto? And so, you know, you look at Wills and Kate or... Um, Harry and Meghan, and so on, and the peak of popularity. It's just like when they're young and falling in love, and they're beautiful. And I, I, I think that there was definitely that with Charles too. And as I said earlier, the Queen was looking older and stodgier and more out of touch. Meanwhile, you have somebody who looks like they could be on a red carpet and goes to events with celebrities, right?
2: Yeah, which is kind of wild because I mean, how old was the Queen at this point? She was sixty-five, you said. Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. like near the age of what Allison Janney is right now so like the idea that collectively everyone was like she's old let's get rid of her it's like <laughs> I would never say that to Allison Janney ever no
0: only say <laughs> Allison Janney you're perfect that yeah. the
2: idea of like what we did to women at that time and that age at that age bracket in that age bracket is kind of shocking if you if you really look back on it because 65 Well, be it, it is senior citizen age. It's still, we have a president that is way older than 65 now.
0: We do it still. I hate to say it. We still do it to ladies today. But one thing
2: I wanted to say about Charles that really surprises me is, because like as a kid, I was always, of course, about, you know, the other, the cool members of the royal family, the Dianas, the Queens, et cetera. And I kind of slept on Charles. But as I got older and started researching more of the royal family, I was sort of blown away by like how forward thinking Charles is kind of, not in every way, like, bringing the toilet seat with him everywhere he goes is a little strange but
1: the <laughs>
2: maybe that was just really forward thinking well, we're going to be doing that in 10 years time very very pre covid forward thinking there but yeah, i guess yeah. you can't get covid from the bathroom i don't know anyway um but that he was such like an environmentalist and he was so forward thinking in terms of sort of like economics and he really is kind of i mean would he be if if for for a british government i don't know the parties but like would he be like a part of the labor part labor would
1: he be labor so not really so so charles is he has been an environmentalist since the 1970s which is quite unusual and he was ridiculed for it for a lot of his career however what stops him from being labor is he's much more of a kind of he's an environmentalist from a kind of countryside conservationist perspective he's very much like rural environmentalism whereas labor a kind of metropolitan the core of the labor party really at the moment and in recent years in particular has been like metropolitan city living people city life um and so for example charles has defended fox hunting before which you know that is a massive labor no no i the labor the last labor government under tony blair made moves to criminalize fox hunting so uh, there are there are um, moments of division as well as moments of unity
0: I do want to say, since you brought up Charles H. Allen Scott, I I do want to say that I um, couldn't help but notice that one episode in particular – Does try to frame him as you were saying, maybe a little bit more on the labor side of things. Maybe he cares about the working man. Maybe he is a cheerleader for those who are disenfranchised. And maybe that episode actually ends with what feels like a PSA for like, and Charles has made this much of a difference now, thanks to the Prince's Trust and all of his charitable work. Um, did anyone else notice that episode that just kind of felt like an advertisement for Charles and how great he is?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I think so. And I did actually think when they when I was watching it that they might have put that in in anticipation of all the flack they've obviously got from the press in Britain for the way that they presented it. And, you know, a desire to make sure that they had introduced some balance and kind of like stood up for Charles as well as tearing him down.
0: If he wasn't so terrible to Diana, maybe we would be okay with him today but although i do kind of love
2: the turnaround with camilla i have to admit part of me is all about this moment of like listen every every marriage has their stories and this dude somehow found a way to be with the literal person that has been the love of his life like in a weird way although he was crappy to diana i will say kudos for you for actually like getting the girl you wanted from
1: the beginning like okay good on you dude good on you (laughs) it's a it's a bonkers story because so he never could have got with camilla originally because camilla like married another man like she was in love with another man so then yeah, so Charles got together with Diana and obviously clearly that should probably just simply not have happened. Um, and then both of them would probably have been much happier. But it is this question, isn't it? Like he couldn't marry like he couldn't marry Camilla at the time. Yes, he so could. if you were gonna play he could have
0: married Camilla. She
1: was she was with Andrew Parker yes, Bowles. Yes, but
0: he was already um, very, very friendly with Camilla and supposedly in love with her before she even met Andrew. He just dilly dallied and didn't ever make a move. And he wasn't ready to make a move yet. And by the time he was ready to make a move, she's like, you know what? While you were dilly-dallying, I got engaged to this other guy. So deal with it.
1: But there is, and there's a line in this season of The Crown, which sort of hints at this. But there was, and this is like, can I even bring myself to say these words uh, with a microphone in front of my face? But there was an expectation at the time that Charles should marry a virgin. Mm-hmm. And Camilla had had this relationship with Andrew Parker Bowles, which meant that from the point of view of the more you know, conservative, so shitty conservative elements of the royal family and wider aristocratic world, Camilla was off the table for Charles, which is why he married someone 13 years younger than him, because the swinging 60s had happened. We're into the 1970s now, and you know, women just simply did not, remain virgins for that long and there's a bit in the crown where diana tells her her boyfriend her new boyfriend post charles you know they've separated now that's done that's gone and she uh, she tells her, her her new boyfriend that she was forced to take a virginity vow mm-hmm. before marriage um, which is i think not it, it wasn't in her literal wedding vows but like her uncle was telling journalists that she was you know uh it was about her chastity, basically. It's yeah. like crazy to think back on.
2: It's really fascinating to watch how or to read how like how literal people took the virginity obsession and how they wanted this sort of like angelic woman to just sort of appear in Charles's life as sort of the the idea of perfection. It's like she went from girl to woman and now she's ready to have the next king of England. But
0: she's like a teenager.
2: And he's in his thirties.
0: Yeah, it's very
2: strange. It's very strange. But I mean, people, I I, I wasn't alive when it all started, but like people were like, it's seemingly mesmerized by this whole, from the moment Diana popped on the scene, it was this obsession. And, And Tina Brown, at least in the book, talks about how like Diana, made fun of herself a lot for not being very smart and for not being very well-read and not having the best grades and not like being intellectual with all the other people she was around. But journalists were like, she prided herself on knowing that she knew how to work with the press. She knew how to, she knew how to communicate with people. She knew how to like be an everyday person and really charm people. And that was her charm. And she recognized that and used that to her advantage so often.
0: Okay, so I know we all love Diana and Charles, and that's really what we want to talk about. But sadly, the Crown doesn't just want to talk about that. Can we all discuss the fact that they dedicate several episodes of this season to side stories that nobody here cares about? There's like an entire episode dedicated to Dodie, not Dodie, Dodie's dad, And how Dodie's dad went from ambitious young man to aspiring aristocrat who goes so far as to hire Edward and Wallace's former valet, Sidney Johnson. There's an entire episode uh, that's pretty much just about Queen Mary of Tech's cousins, the Romanovs, and um, how she could have saved them from the Bolsheviks in 1918, but then chose not to. And then there's like another episode that's pretty much just about the inner workings of the BBC, I did not need these three episodes.
2: I think one of them is important, to understand, I think, British culture, because I've always been fascinated by Dodi Fayette and the whole Fayad situation and the father, and I feel like that, that in particular, his story of coming up as a foreigner through the UK and trying to get he was all about being a part of the aristocratic class, and he was trying to really sort of raise, with money, with the money that he had to raise himself in standing with the society, which is So emblematic, I think, of why people love the royals and why people are so – and why – and how he was sort of like doing what everyone else was doing in a post sort of Wall Street world of like trying to better themselves just by using all this money that they may or may not have to keep up appearances. And he kind of did that. And Dodi Fayette also was kind of like that where it had to be so – grand and excessive and it had to be about labels and names and you had to stay at this hotel you had to you had to leave the like when they were staying in, in Paris, they had to leave the front of the hotel because he wanted and his father he, that's how he was raised they wanted the pictures they wanted the notoriety of that they could afford this hotel and it's like to me that's so emblematic of really the world well the western world popular culture at the time that's who we are and we kind of
0: still are like that so you were okay with that I'm okay ahead, with that
2: yeah. because, as a history person, I think it's, it it helps contextualize the motives behind some of these people and their decisions.
1: One thing I didn't understand though is why they did, so they did it really early, which I guess is faithful to you know the calendar because they did it chronologically and so they start the fired story in like the early 90s, which is probably where their story starts. In fact, it actually technically starts earlier than I think in the 80s, but they started really early in the season, and you don't really get to see where Adodi if you don't know already which I guess most people probably do, but you don't get to see where they fit into Diana's story until way, 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 way further forwards. And even then, it's quite light touch at the end of the season when they get to Diana and Dodie. So... It's like you, if you don't already know who Mohammed Al Fayed is and who Dodi Fayed is, you're going to be really confused about why, why that episode is there.
2: I have so many friends who watch The Crown who don't know anything about the royal family, but they just love the pageantry of the Crown. So I think a lot of people yeah, will yeah. be confused.
1: Yeah. yeah, because also like the the actual relationship between Diana and Dodi was pretty short, and they don't they stop before the end of it, so they don't even do the whole of the relationship. So you get kind of like maybe up to the point where they're just starting to touch on Diana and Dodie being a thing and they don't do Diana's death in the car crash. So if you didn't know who he was, you are potentially finishing the season still not knowing who he was or why he's so significant.
0: And and there's even less of him than his dad. So that's the interesting part to me. It's like, this is all about Dodie's dad, not really about Dodie. Dodie is kind of yeah. this like yeah, yeah, yeah. spoiled rich kid who's like, Dad, why don't you pay for more of my projects? Dad, you only want to pay for this and that because you like it. And it's like, Dodie, make your own money. Come on. Do, <laughs> do something for yourself.
2: That was the weird thing about him. Everything that I've read about him, which has mostly been Tina Brown's reporting, I have to admit, but everything I've read <laughs> about him has been that he was sort of aimless and he didn't really have – he did really live off of his father's wealth and, and kind of – I mean, he was a movie producer for one film that was successful. He really didn't do very much other than party. And so it was kind of it's it is kind of, I think, an accurate portrayal in that. Like, yeah, if you're living off your father, let's figure out who your father's motives are then and like what he's about, because is your father pushing this relationship for for symbol for class? Or is it are you wanting this relationship? And that's what I've always wondered.
1: And that is very much the narrative in the Crown, isn't it? They they actually frame Mohammed Al Fayed as being potentially a like a little bit racist even to his valet Sidney Johnson when he first meets him, and he well I say a little bit, but he actually like asks for Sidney Johnson to be removed from this function that he's hosting, um, the implication being that it was because Sidney Johnson is black. Um, but then this friendship develops between he winds up hiring him when he realizes that Sidney Johnson worked for Edward VIII. And this friendship, this really warm, close friendship, develops between them, where Sydney Johnson teaches uh, Mohammed Al Fayed how to be a British gentleman, um, which and it all has some some roots in fact. I mean, you know, this did happen, and uh, Mohammed Al Fayed describes Sydney Johnson as the gentleman's gentleman. Um, but it's you know it, it, they really, like you say, they've gone hook, line, and sinker behind trying to look at Muhammad al-Fayed as a character himself. And he obviously became a major character in the royal story after Diana died when he lodged these incredibly serious bombshell you know, allegations that Diana had been murdered by the British states because Prince Philip didn't want her to have a Muslim baby. Um, which was a theory that was obviously ultimately discounted at the inquest and in the police investigation, but it was on in all of the British papers at the time. Didn't he put up like a yeah. shrine or something to he both did. of them in Harrods? In Harrods, correct. Yeah, he did.
0: Okay, so let's talk about some of these other side stories. We we talked about Dodie's dad being like an entire episode and a half, um, but then there's also that whole episode about the Romanovs and we're like suddenly back in 1918 and... Yeah. Um, queen much. Mary of Tech. Uh, reminder, that is Queen Elizabeth's grandmother. So we're doing a flashback, not to the queen as a young child or to the queen Mum, but to Queen Mary of Tech. And I, I, I don't know about you guys. I'm like, why do we need this? I, I know you're trying to be symbolic here, but you don't need to. We don't need this.
2: Every season they have yeah, one yeah, yeah. subplot that's just like, okay, I, I get you love history, but you need to read the room. Like, read what we're here for, guys. Come on, Peter Morgan. Read what we're here for.
1: It's like a full hour to deliver one basic point, which was that to kind of show that the monarchy had sometimes been emotionally indifferent. I think that's what they're trying to land, isn't it? Diana felt the royals were emotionally indifferent and cold, and that's the point they're trying to land. But an hour, like, guys, come on. I am a busy man. I do not have the time in my life and my day to spend an hour with the Bolsheviks. (laughs) Seriously. It's
2: also just not a sexy name to say. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, in a weird way, I'd rather be like, Dodi Fahad instead of Bolsheviks. Like, it sounds like a it sounds like a soup that you made that's, like, you, you eat it cold. I don't know. I they don't. probably did. They yeah. probably did eat a little yeah. cold soup, yeah. I don't know. It's, that's not fun.
0: Yeah, and, and we all know, we've watched so much of the Crown. We all know, like, they are capable of just saying the obvious, why didn't they just say the obvious instead of have an entire episode that is tangentially related to make a point? Like maybe they had an, an extra 100
2: million sitting around and they were just like,
0: well, let's do that. I could have then. done with more tampon gate instead or more <laughs> Fergie's toes. I could have done with more of anything else other than the Bolsheviks. Really, I, I didn't need that. And you know what else I didn't need? I did not need to know all the inner workings of the BBC. There's that one episode where it's just like, are we really going to talk to like every board member and everybody on the like ninth floor of the BBC building now about how the BBC works and BBC funding? And did you know satellite TV is this new thing? And like, why did we need all of that?
2: I mean, yes, I agree. And also, why isn't there sort of like talk about how the BBC the, how the BBC sometimes covered certain stories or certain things and certain ways, then certain things that maybe they didn't say. How the media presents this royal family often indicates how we then our perception of them. And I think yeah. for yeah, a yeah. long time the BBC sort of slept on some of some of the things that maybe the royal family, you know, the, when and they probably worried that they were going to be tabloid. It was going to be it would be tabloid to report on some of these things, but it also maybe could have helped the helped Diana a little bit if they would have reported some things accurately.
1: I don't know. Well, funnily enough, it's not just the BBC. So she went to Sir Max Hastings at the point when he was editor of the Daily Telegraph, big, big broadsheet newspaper, in Britain, right-leaning broadsheet newspaper in Britain, and actually Prince Charles' favourite newspaper, probably why, why she went to them. Um, and she sat him down and told him everything. This was before the Martin Bashir interview. And he took the view that it, it couldn't be published because she was emotionally unstable, basically and he felt that she was vulnerable and that he would be exploiting her to publish all of this material but obviously she wanted it out there which is why she went and did did the big stick bombshell sit down tell all um but yeah he's like imagine being being given a story that big and choosing to sit on it, it is extraordinary and i cannot imagine it would happen in any other mm. specialism than royal reporting
0: it is fascinating but most of this does not belong in the season of The Crown. Yes. (laughs) It does not. No, we don't need to know about the inner workings of the BBC. We don't need to know about the Bolsheviks. We do not need to know about Dodie's dad and what he was doing in the 1940s. Totally. That is my take on these side stories. And I can see where you're coming from, H. Allen, where it's like, Dodie's dad's story does, in some ways, parallel certain things and speak to certain things in the show, and, and, and that was a beautifully made episode—the main episode that shares his story.
2: We want three things from this season: we want the queen at a crossroads, we want Charles and Diana and all of that drama, and we want Fergie having her toes sucked. Like those are the those are the three things that we want as royal watchers of the crown. And they did deliver, at least on those three things. But there was a lot of other things that you're right. We could have probably been done without.
0: Not enough of the toes, though. It was a throwaway line.
2: <laughs> it was throwaway that, yeah. Fergie is my favorite. Fergie is the one that I want to go. <laughs> uh-huh. I want to go get a drink at the bar. I want to talk about all her kinks. I want to like have so much fun with
1: Fergie. Fergie is... The best. My picture of talking to Fergie is like going round to well, maybe being a teenager and going round to a friend's house when their mum is having a party and like their mum has had a few too many glasses of wine and it's all coming out. Like that's Fergie to me.
0: Yes, I'm the fun <laughs> mom. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. When those toes were sucked, I was like, wow, you are really the coolest person in the world. Like the fact that like you're just out here living your life. And also I feel like She was, she should have been, I mean, uh, uh, there, there are question, questionable things that she's still sort of with. A little. She's still with Prince. He's still. They're
1: still kind of a dating, right? Yeah, exactly. Live, live rather than dating. Uh, they're very close. They're, they go. They all go on holiday together. The official line is that there's no dating element to it or nothing. That it's platonic. You know, honestly, who knows what they do uh, in the privacy of their own home? Oh, well, we know some um, things or, what they do in the privacy.
2: <laughs> of we, right. we know some things. <laughs> she uh, does say she's um, still with Prince Charming, but, though
0: she does say that
2: yes exactly and the fact that what we know about him now and of course that horrible bbc interview from a few years ago tied to jeffrey epstein and all of that so my love of fergie has kind of been like maybe you should question living with this dude for a bit i get he's the father of your kids but maybe you should get an apartment somewhere and only see each other on the weekends i don't know but i still do love fergie i think she's saucy i think she's fun and i love that she was a weight watcher spokesperson (laughs) (laughs)
0: oh gosh well on that note we'll be back in just a moment okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, everybody. We are back with our very special guest, H. Allen Scott host of the Parting Shot podcast. We're talking all about season five of The Crown today. And now let's dive in with um, our thoughts on this season's cast and let's do a little bit of fact-checking as well. So um, let's start with the cast. Jack, do you want to remind us everybody who's in this season?
1: So the big names are Elizabeth Debicki, uh, Australian actress, and people might know her for the fact that, like Diana, she was tall, taller than Prince Charles in Diana's case and taller than... Dominic West, who plays Prince Charles, um, so those are our two uh, probably central characters, and I love that they cast Dominic West, famous for his affairs in the Wire, uh, also famous for Lily James. I'm sure everybody remember, may well remember that there was a little bit of a fling there, and his wife uh, had to tell the world that she was stand, that you know they were still very much in love and a couple, and all the rest of it. he's Dominic so, West, but, I mean, come on, look at look him. at it.
0: Him. <laughs> um, I'm I, I have to say. The casting did not tickle me as much as you because I'm like, I'm sorry. Once again, he's way better looking than Charles. We need somebody who's not good looking to play this role. It's Benedict Cumberbatch
2: should have played Prince Charles. That's who I think. Benedict be, Cumberbatch. Benedict, that is a good shout touch. Because he, he, he's oh, not like
0: Benedict. That would be interesting. Yeah, because he's like not
2: unattractive, but he's also not the guy you would be like walking into the bar being like, yeah, I'm going home with Benedict Cumberbatch. Whereas Dominic, <laughs> Dominic West, you you see him at the bar and you're literally like, take my wallet, take my keys. I'll do what you say
0: take my pants yes take it all <laughs> yes <take> it all. <laughs> whereas benedict's more like
1: let's go tea i think that's a great shout but he's got curly hair but i guess charles's hair is kind of a bit curly when it grows out isn't it
0: how do we feel about Amelda staunton she's now taken over the role of the queen from olivia coleman and before her claire foy how do we feel about Amelda? she is my queen
2: she is perfect. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever, I was never privy to watch her live in this show, but if you ever saw her do um, Gypsy, in uh, as, as you know, Mama Rose, I guess her name, uh, mm-hmm. incredible. And her take on that is incredible. She's literally like the most, un- everyone loves Helen Mirren, and I love Helen Mirren. Like Helen Mirren is here, right? Everyone's like, Helen Mirren's mm-hmm. the shit. Excuse me. But Emilda Staunton is always just right under Helen Mirren. And I'm like, I always, people sleep People sleep on Amilda, and I'm like, no, she might have a weird name,
0: but don't sleep on
2: her because she's actually better than Helen Mirren. And you guys just don't want to see it because she doesn't look like Helen Mirren. And I love looking at Helen Mirren, but Amilda Stone is everything.
1: Amilda Stone's profile is very Queen. Like they they linger on her profile quite a lot. I think because the profile looks a lot like the Queen.
0: She is getting very mixed reviews, um, but I also just think she's not being given as much to do as the queen in prior seasons was given to do. And I think that might be part of it.
1: I think also she's not helped by the fact that I actually personally do think that Prince Philip was not cast very well. I don't really buy Philip in this season at all. Um, so,
0: so Jonathan Price is not doing it for Jonathan you. Jonathan
1: Price, or as I still remember him, Elliot Carver from uh, the James Bond film Tomorrow Never Dies back in the 90s.
2: I remember him as Madonna's husband in A So, yeah,
1: interesting.
0: <laughs> oh, I remember him from Miss Saigon on stage.
1: There you go. We're all coming from a different place.
0: Playing Asian. Not cool.
1: Yeah, not good. And as Prince Philip, he doesn't have that kind of sharpness to his voice or that edge that Philip has always had. Like, Philip's always had a lot of... He's very blunt, isn't he, and direct. And he has a, he has a lot of edge both to his voice and his personality. And, um, yeah, he just... I just don't get any of that. Wish they could have just Philip. kept the last actor who played... I'm
2: yeah. blanking on his yeah, yeah, name. Yeah. Well, I'm, I forget his name now. But he was so perfect as Prince Charles. So perfect. He, like... He was also the hottest, I mean he was just like
0: he was just the, <laughs> too hot, he was too hot he was a little too hot, but
2: <laughs> but, he, but he he was like hot ugly, you know what I mean like in that he's not <laughs> hot in the sense that like you're like, wow, you're really hot, you know he's not like Brad Pitt, let's be real, but he's like he becomes hot the more you like watch his emotions and then you're like, wow, you're emotionally available, you're hot like that's that's that actor I, which I now I'm blinking on his name, oh my God, I feel so bad
0: <laughs> um we should also mention we have Leslie Manville playing Margaret, and we have Olivia Williams playing Camilla. Um, I would say Olivia Williams, in my opinion, is trying to play Camilla in in a very sympathetic way. Where like, you know, why are they parked outside my house with their cameras? Why why are they turning me into the villain? You know, she she um seems quite put upon in this. Even though let's be real, she's the villain in real life, right? or one of the villains.
1: Now, that's another one that is out of real life. That This is one of the things that Diana said was Camilla is moaning to Charles that she's got six photographers outside her house and Charles is falling over himself with how sympathetic he is and I've got 30 outside mine and he yeah. doesn't seem to care. So that is, yeah, so she's present. She that sympathetic portrayal that she's giving, I guess, to play devil's advocate, you could argue, is trying to reflect the sympathy that Charles had for her. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. And I think yeah. history
2: has been more sympathetic on Camilla than we've become more sympathetic, I think, for Camilla's situation. I think as time has gone by, we've been able to learn more about the relationship and and about them. and And like I said earlier, it's this weird... I don't know. I'm, this is this is going to be my weird queer person speaking, but like I've always felt that straight people have a really weird idea of relationships, and like y'all, <laughs> y'all need to understand that things need to be a little bit more fluid, and y'all would have a le- a lot less therapy bills in your lives if you if you were more fluid. But so part of me is like. The binary of this marriage and everything was just so out of whack that it was just like everyone just needed to sit down and have a good conversation. And maybe they could have worked out a nice little threesome like it just could have been. Now you sound like Philip.
0: <laughs> Philip is pretty much like Philip's like, you know what? One thing is your job and the others behind closed doors. Do what you want to behind closed doors like I do all the time. That's kind of like on the TV show how Philip is portrayed. He he really is like, there's two things here. We're rich aristocrats. We can sleep with whoever we want to. And there's this other thing, which is going to meet and greets and cutting ribbons.
2: In terms of the communication about the relationship, I don't think it needs to be necessarily behind closed doors. But I also think, well, if Diana's is able to satisfy her love in her way, if she was able to find a place in her life where she was able to have be intimate with someone and share feelings and everything. And they were still able to be in a marriage together while living two very separate lives. Frankly, there's a lot of people have been doing that for a long, 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 long time. Not saying it would have been great for them, but I'm just saying like, maybe they could have just communicated about stuff a little bit more. And I think with Camilla, because they've been together so long now and because there is this sort of, and I don't know what her ratings are like, but I feel like they're pretty like, even the queen before she died was like, Camilla should be, named queen corset, right? Like, like they were very sympathetic to sort of accepting Camilla into this role of being an active member of the Royal family.
1: So she, her ratings have historically been quite low. She did have a, uh, after the Queen made that announcement, she did have a bit of a swing in her favour and she probably has had another one since she became Queen Consort. Um, But whether that proves to be lasting or not, we will probably not know for like a year when we can actually get an opportunity to wait until like the public have settled in to what Charles is actually like as King. I always think with polling, it's really important to look at the long-term picture because there are always like swings up and down and you never know whether it's actually going to be a lasting position or not
2: there's also all those videos of tracy ullman as camilla which is probably some of the funniest things you (laughs) google you need to youtube those videos because they're her her camilla is the funniest thing you've ever seen i do need to talk about leslie Manville though because i interviewed her about this i interviewed her for another film but then we talked about her she was filming the queen as we were doing the interview and she was it was so funny in our conversation it was for the parting shot. And it was so funny in our conversation, she was talking about how she's like, she's such a British actress in that like, she's like, two people have played this before me. My research is very detailed. I just need to watch The Crown and read a few books. (laughs) And I just (laughs) love, and I loved how literal she was. She was just like, I said to bring this woman to life and just, you know, and then follow the great uh, actresses that have played this part and do a little bit of them and do a little bit of me. And boom, you got, (laughs) you got my performance, which I loved.
0: I do feel that she did have big shoes to fill, though, by following up uh, Helena Bonham Carter, who was, you know, quite delightful, in my opinion, as Margaret, you know, that those are big shoes to fill. But I think she brings a lot of humanity to it. You know, Um, a lot of what we're seeing of Margaret this season is how her experience with Peter Townsend how that is being reflected over and over again in the royal family of, like, nobody is really allowed to be with who they love except for the queen. The queen always gets what she wants, and nobody else gets to be with who they love. They all get to be with who they have to because of duty. And Leslie Manville, I think, brings a quiet, seething rage to it, and then sometimes just an overt rage to this.
2: If you look back at her career, particularly her films with Mike Lee, and how the, her the way the method in which she approaches a character is so different than most other actors in that. She really sits with it and she she studies it and she be and she has to her feelings about the character has to almost take over the factual sort of truth about the character in a lot of ways, in that like she's just sort of vibing and she talks about how she's not a trained normally trained actress, and that's how she she kind of learned with Mike Lee. And it was it's really fascinating to hear how she approaches acting, because I feel like it's probably very different to like an Amilda Staunton, for example, who also famously works with Mike Lee often as well.
1: Yeah, I thought she was great as Margaret. I thought I think she kind of actually uh, reminds me much more of Margaret than Helena Bonham Carter visually. Like, I love Helena Bonham Carter. I think she's brilliant. And she drew, in my mind, like a subliminal connection between... Princess Margaret and so many people I know in real life. And I was suddenly like, yes, you're Princess Margaret and so are you. (laughs) Um, But it sounds like actually resembling Princess Margaret. uh, I do think that this season has kind of nailed the look a little better. I think so, too, because the past two, we kind
2: of I feel like the two actresses played off the fantasy of her and sort of yeah. what, what, what yeah, we yeah. wanted her to be. And those actresses really fit those roles really well for those fantasies of those eras, you know,
0: should we get to some fact checking? Cause I know, There are a lot of things in this particular season of the show that people are going to have questions about. I already have people reaching out to me asking, like, how much of this is true? How much is not true? How should we do this, Jack? Should we go through just, like, I put together what I think are, like, the top 20 questions people are going to be fact-checking on here. So should we just go through some of them?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let's do it that way. That sounds great.
0: All right. So... One of the first things that has come up, it's in the very first episode of the season, Uh, Charles, if he is trying to push the Queen to abdicate, and um, if, if he was really pushing for that, did he really try to plant a story in the Times, kind of an editorial piece about maybe why the Queen should abdicate? Did he actually push for that?
1: So there was a a real story in in the Times about... uh, There was a real poll which asked the British public, do you think that at some point in the future the Queen should abdicate in favour of Charles? And sure enough, a significant percentage of people did think that she should, but the Crown has it being as though it was going to happen right there. And yes, like you say, they then launched this whole story off the back of that poll, suggesting that Charles might have actually been, you know, pushing for the Queen to go so that he could take over... So, all of the while the polling was rooted in reality, Charles did not actually have like a plot to get the Queen to abdicate. So that, like we said earlier, is probably more the framing that Charles was really popular at the time, and then it all swung the other way when the affair with Camilla became public.
2: It's also kind of all absurd right.
1: to think about too. She would never,
2: she's all about tradition. Everyone knows that. And
0: she said she would dedicate her whole life, however long or short it may be. And we even have um, that scene shown again this season when she's giving that speech, however long or short my life is. That is shown again this season. So it's like, she's not going to abdicate, you know, like the only way she's going to not be on that throne is if she's dead. That's made clear. All right. A smaller detail. Uh, body worker, acupuncturist, astrologer. Did Diana really have all of these people in her life? It is implied that she does this season.
1: Well, more to the point, she had a faith healer, alternative healer, who uh, professed to be a psychic. So, yeah, she had she had a lot of these people around her. Um, Simone Simmons was close to her to the point that actually she was interviewed by the police after diana died and gave a statement to uh, the metropolitan police investigation was called operation paget and so she gave yeah she gave a statement to operation paget which was also part of the inquest into diana's death so one of the things that she contributed <clears throat> was that she had said to somebody she had said to diana rather uh, at some point that she had had a premonition about diana dying in a car crash and diana had also said to simone simmons that she had break, experienced brake failure While she was driving her car and was concerned about whether, you know, the security, it might be foul play, basically. Um, And this is another thing that is actually in this season. Diana's driving and her brakes fail and she goes careering through an intersection while the lights are red and nearly has a crash. So that was actually uh, based from, drawn from a couple of different places, one of which is a, a note that Diana wrote to Simone Simmons, her psychic spiritual healer.
0: I think it's interesting that in the show, Charles is kind of throwing these accusations at her like look at all these nutty people you turn to but we all know nowadays that uh, charles has uh, really embraced alternative medicines and a lot of what some people would call kooky yeah, healing yeah, yeah. techniques and so on himself so for him to be scolding diana over like you're using all of these alternative methods to take care of yourself when we now know he has also done a lot of alternative treatments he's yeah.
2: hanging out with treatment. someone who's leaving yeah. tampons everywhere like come on
0: <laughs> he hangs out with
2: kooky people too
0: he wants to be a tampon yes you know?
1: yeah maybe she wasn't leaving tampons everywhere that was the problem that's why he needs to be one talk to a psychic that's normal wanting to be a tampon maybe questionable <laughs>
0: <laughs> does he know how long people actually use tampons for
1: i think um Again, you know, we are fact-checking. We are fact-checking. And he did note the fact that he would probably wind up uh, going down the toilet. So I I think he did know.
0: And I'm going to fact-check that. That's bad for pipes. You you take that tampon and you put it in the bin. You do not put it in the toilet.
1: Right. You're just going to clog all your pipes. New royal scandal. All
0: right. Let's fact-check this. Prince Philip and Penny Braeburn. How real was their friendship? Did they really love chariot racing together? Did the Queen actually maybe not feel 100% comfortable with this friendship? Let's talk about that.
1: So this was a real-life friendship they had met, I think, sometime before. And the Queen, you know, they knew the families previously, but uh, Philip... Got really close with Penny Brabourne or Penny Natchbull um, around in the early nineties, around about the time that her daughter died of cancer, and he helped to comfort her. And yes, they went carriage driving together. And yes, there was there were rumours at the time and gossip that it might be more than just a friendship. Now, the Crown have taken loads and loads and loads of flack for including this storyline, and the Daily Mail got very angry with them. And various people um, came out to say that it was horrible and ridiculous that this storyline was included. But one quite interesting. Interesting thing about the backdash is that the Daily Mail said that they covered a storyline about Philip having an affair, and he doesn't have an affair in the Crown. He has a friendship mm-hmm. with her, and there is a, there's one conversation between him and the Queen in which the Queen is clearly a bit suspicious, and he says, no... This is just a friendship. It's nothing more than that. So the crown explicitly states that it wasn't an affair and that what he was actually getting from her was a kind of, uh, they do suggest that he was getting something from her that the queen couldn't give. She was interested in some of his passions and pursuits in a way that perhaps the queen was less interested.
0: Yeah. And she didn't have a job. So all she had in life was just like her hobbies. She's Mm. a rich lady of leisure, right? And... Um he's kind of just a rich guy of leisure and they have things they can do together. The Queen is doing what is it, like five hundred engagements a year at this point in her career? And he has somebody he can hang out with and I don't know, talk about chariot wheels and um <laughs> chariot seats. I think he, I
2: think he needed that. I, I support I mean, I'm never a huge fan of Philip, but like I kinda of support
1: this and I kinda of think it's sweet and I think every I think it's nice. I don't know.
0: Yeah.
2: It's
1: hard to be in the it's hard to be in the royal family, isn't it? I mean it must you know, every holiday in Balmoral and Scotland, like there's so much structure to the royal life. You know where you're spending Christmas every year, you know where you're spending August every year. There must be a real need to try to mix things up and to find a way to let something grow that's outside of that structure.
0: Let's fact check this. The Season 5 of The Crown, uh, it shows that Andrew Morton, he was uh, Diana's biographer, that there is a break-in in in his office, uh, that people associated with this biography are being chased off the road, that there are people desperate to get their hands on any information they can about Diana. How true is this, Jack?
1: So Diana did genuinely smuggle uh, cassette tape confessions to Andrew Morton and she did so via her her friend James Courthurst, and that is all true. There was a burglary at Andrew Morton's uh, office and nothing of any major significance was stolen. We don't really know whether it was connected to what was happening or not but there's a really interesting bit in the re-released more modern edition of Andrew Morton's book that came out after Diana died in which he talks about this whole process and he said after he first listened to all of these tapes which was actually in like a proper what you'd call a working men's cafe like a, or a greasy spoon like a proper like bacon and eggs cafe he sat there with the you know where builders would go and eat their breakfast um he was sat there listening to all of these extraordinary stories on his on his walkman It being the 90s um and then he he was going home on the tube afterwards and he said he made sure that he stood quite far away from the edge of the platform because he was genuinely having like paranoid feelings about would he get pushed in front of a train
2: as a journalist i would definitely be like you need to take an uber or a cab or something and bill it (laughs) bill it to your publisher because you have sensitive material in your bag they're gonna pay for you to get home
1: safely don't take the tube (laughs) (laughs) i remember being told at a previous job never take the tube Just oh, and the reason why I was told what if the Queen dies? Never take if you're in if you're underground when the Queen dies.
0: It's fun Uh, because
1: someone else is going to pay for it. Like just take a cab. Sometimes
0: the tube is just faster. But if
2: I had something that Princess Diana gave me, and she's talking about tampons on those tapes, I want, (laughs) I want. I'm going to take an Uber. I'm going to take an Uber. You know.
0: All right, we need to fact check a couple of things about Doty's dad. So, you already said Doty's dad really did indeed hire Sidney Johnson, the valet who used to work for Edward of Edward and Wallace Simpson fame. Um, but did Doty's dad also rescue all of Edward and Wallace's Simpson's possessions after Sidney Johnson died? Did he become the caretaker of the estate? Of Edward and Wallace Simpson. That is shown on season five of The Crown. Did it happen?
1: He did genuinely buy their house, and he created a museum there of all of their possessions. And it, yeah, Sidney Johnson genuinely helped (coughs) with creating that. And he said, uh, "Mahmoud Al Fayed said that Sidney Johnson had a kind of like I can't remember his exact phrase, sort of encyclopedic historic knowledge of all of these artifacts and possessions." So I think this is one of the stories that I think is really like very heavily rooted from genuine historic fact that Al Fayed did genuinely take to this guy who he regarded as being an English gentleman in spite of the fact that one might tend to assume that because of you know historically you know like edward the eighth was king you know he abdicated in 1936 like you're going back to a time when racism was really visible and present in society and stanley um, sydney johnson rather was uh, like a black man in the moving in these circles edward the eighth in fact was I'm um, thought to be is by some historians a nazi sympathizer so it's a it is a really uh, like extraordinary situation in many ways and yeah mohammed al-fire genuinely had this guy he called him the gentleman's gentleman and he created a museum out of edward the possessions
0: all right love all these fact checks i have a few more we're not going to go through all 20 of these but we're going to go through just a few more all right did the queen really shrug off her duty to sit with Dodie's dad at an event that Dodie's dad sponsored. You know, when someone's sponsoring an event like a polo match, you're supposed to sit with the sponsor. And on the show, we see the queen saying, I don't want to sit with him. And instead, Diana takes her place, sits next to him, and the two uh, develop a bit of a friendship. Do we know if any of that happened?
1: So, Mohammed Al Fayed did indeed sponsor the Windsor Horse Show in 1992, and he was photographed with the Queen. I am not aware of Diana being there that day, and I certainly don't think that he was fobbed off on Diana. I think again, this is the Crown trying to find a way to introduce Diana into that episode, but also to convey the fact that, in their own very different ways, Mohammed Al Fayed and Diana were both kind of outsiders who were struggling to get in into and exist within a very traditional institution
0: mm. oh i love this fact checking that's so good <laughs>
2: and it, it kind of makes me feel like because i mean i'm one of these people that when i watch shows like this that i know there's some liberties that have been taking with history my favorite thing to do is to like obsessively google maybe that's a journalism <laughs> i don't know but obsessively <laughs> like research like whether it's fact or true so that way then when i'm like explaining this moment to my boyfriend i can accurately tell him the truth you know what i mean instead of what the show is telling me but i don't mind the show doing it because i'm also like well it's good drama though
1: i want diana talking to yeah
0: (laughs) absolutely i mean we all know it's entertainment we know it's not a documentary this is it it.
1: it's it's not a documentary it's entertainment but either even when they depart from the facts and they depart from the truth there is usually some kind of a truth that they're trying to convey it just might not be like a literal Mm -hmm. truth Mm -hmm.
0: yes all right did Diana really speak so openly with random strangers about her dissatisfaction in life, about things she wasn't happy about? So t-
1: remind me which bit of the series this is, because I was struggling to remember this. Would you mean
0: So she even jokes with Dodie's dad, who she just meets, oh, I see, about the she fact just that she him. just feels like, yeah, yeah and, and she does it a few other times. She does it also when she first meets Hasnat Khan, for example. She just does it with random strangers when she meets them. And I actually know the answer to this one. Oh, you took take it away. I was just listening to Katie Couric's memoir. And Katie Couric talks about at one point when she was interviewing Diana and how Diana would just like say things like an old friend to her. Like, oh, here's the thing about my boys. And she would just talk openly about some of this stuff and about how lonely she was at times. And and Katie Couric's like wow, she's just telling me this stuff. She's not afraid to divulge that she's lonely or whatever. And they weren't, like, tape wasn't even rolling at the time. That was just making small talk after or before the interview. And Diana genuinely did that, is what Katie Couric says.
1: Yeah, so I think Diana, you know, she must have felt quite isolated. and lo- I mean, she did feel very isolated and lonely in the palace. So I guess it does kind of make sense that you would latch on to the people you then meet, even if you don't know them all that well. I mean, Hasnat Khan was the doctor at uh, she went to the uh, to the royal brompton to see her friend who had heart problems he was a heart surgeon and turned into her boyfriend and the love of his life he was the doctor of her friend um also she had a Relationship in in uh, that her time before she divorced um, Charles or separated from Charles with her royal protection officer, Barry Manneke. Like, it's mm-hmm. really clear that this is a woman who is desperately reaching out to the people who are, happen to be there because she perhaps doesn't have that community inside the palace. Well, and it's also kind of like what everything, I mean, even with the last season of The
2: Crown, but also just what we know about Diana in general. Like, part of her brand was sort of... Uh, mucking the norm of how a Royal talks with people, you know what I mean? And how a Royal communicates the whole hel- holding the hand of an AIDS patient without a glove or holding the hand of anybody mm-hmm. without a glove for that matter. Or like this, just the subtle way in which she would communicate, I think was genuine for her. I think she genuinely was a nurturing caretaking type of person who, who, who sort of gesticulated in that way, just without words, even she was just that type of person, but also I think she recognized that about that was her strength and she used it to Mm -hmm. her advantage. I think a lot of times in life, which, you know, worked out for her, at least in terms of getting the press that she got, some of the good press that she got.
0: Yeah. And and I do think that was giving her something also. Maybe she needed hugs too. Maybe it's not just that she was reaching out to give hugs because it would help somebody else or be a good photo op, but maybe she just wasn't getting enough hugs. I'm guessing she was not getting a lot of hugs from Charles. Let's just be real. He probably wasn't hugging her very much. Yeah. And the queen probably not hugging very much. I wonder if they ever
2: hugged. Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) I I bet they never did. Can you imagine that? I feel like I've hugged an Airbnb owner before, like that I've left their place. and I've I've given them a hug to say goodbye. Like I'm closer with an Airbnb owner than Diana was with the person she was the person's house she was staying at.
1: Wow. And the one bit of the 90s that they left out of this series was, or they vaguely referenced it, but didn't get into it, was Charles did a biography as well with the journalist Jonathan Dimbleby, in which he said that the Queen didn't, or it was said following interviews with him, that the Queen didn't really hug him very much. And the one place where he knew he was guaranteed a hug was in the nursery with his nanny.
0: Did Charles really have the audacity to just call Camilla at home sometimes? And if Camilla's husband picked up, would he just like chat with him while he waited for Camilla to come to the phone?
1: So, yeah, I mean, I guess one thing you've got to remember here is that mobile phones didn't exist. So they didn't really have an option to call each other (laughs) not at home. Or maybe they existed, but they were not in the way that they exist now. Um, So... Uh, Yes, I don't know about the chatting to the husband, but I guess that would probably have happened because that's the kind of thing that happens, right? Um, But yeah, I mean, whoever picks up
0: the phone, you just have to talk. You have to talk with whoever picks
1: up the phone. That's that's how it it worked when we were all um, young once many years ago. Um, But yeah, I mean, there was a time that Diana suggested that she had caught Charles and Camilla in flagrante. Um, in while Charles was in the bathroom on the phone to Camilla. Um, oh. And she, had, yeah, she, well, she certainly had heard him um, talk very affectionately to her. And whether it went any further than that, I will leave to your imagination.
0: I don't want to imagine that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, but it's too late. I've done it to you now. <laughs> don't think of pink elephant. The phone calls are quite a
2: bit between Charles and Camilla and how, in a weird way, Camilla and Andrew's marriage was, Andrew was surprisingly, I mean, because he had his own affairs, too. I mean, it was very, very much reported that Andrew was a, a man about town, even after marrying Camilla. And so, like, they had an oddly, I wouldn't say evolved relationship, but he kind of, I think, from what Tina Brown reports, he kind of just sort of accepted that, that Charles and Camilla had a close relationship
1: and let them talk. And it's kind of wild to listen to. Or to read. So hold on a second. That means that you're now bringing Andrew into this polyamorous relationship that you were advocating for earlier. So yeah, we've got four in there.
0: Now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there were four of us in this marriage. Have marriage. your fun. Have your fun, people. If everyone's knowing and communicating and
2: consenting, have your fun.
0: Yeah, and let's not forget Andrew Parker Bowles. Didn't he also date Anne? Yes.
1: Yeah. Charles's sister. Yeah. Early first.
0: On. So. Yeah, lest we forget this whole group of people. It's never a family tree. It's always a Christmas wreath. It always is. It always goes back on itself. That's true. All right. I'm going to fact check with you one last thing just because I'm very curious. Did Diana really go on dates with the love of her life, Dr. Hosnut Khan, in disguise? Uh, Season five shows them going to see a movie together and she is, you know, in a wig and nobody recognizes her. Did she actually do stuff like this?
1: she loved to get dressed up in disguise and um i don't know whether she actually ever did it for hasnak khan she might well have done but the most famous and fantastic example is that she was sitting around with um freddie mercury and i think kenny everett um and then they they were actually watching golden girls and uh <gasps> this, she, yes. <laughs>
0: yes, so, yes 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 yes
1: uh, they 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 wanted to go to a gay club basically and Diana was like oh you know whatever I can't be photographed didn't, didn't want to do it so they came up with this crazy idea to dress her up as a man and smuggle her into the gay club which they did entirely successfully and she got a drink and nobody rumbled them and then uh, when they were done she just went back to Kensington Palace. I have been to
2: hundreds possibly
1: thousands but definitely
2: hundreds of gay bars across this great world of ours everywhere i've traveled i've been to a gay bar if i would have saw and of course i was a child when diana died so i probably would not have ran into her to gay bar but if i was an adult ran into her a gay bar i would literally i would probably faint like and i don't i've never fainted in my life but i feel like like my genetics would force me to faint
0: oh no i would go up to her and ask what golden girl she is
2: oh i don't think i would be even able to talk which is saying a lot because i talk a lot
0: that is such a great fact jack that's, that's a good so deep cut, cut. That, that, that last it was one actually was perfect.
1: kenny everett's outfit that she wore and it was a camouflage jacket she had her hair tucked up into a leather cap and she was wearing dark aviator sunglasses so that is the picture that in your mind can you imagine oh, I,
2: love oh, I wonder if any guy
1: hit on diana thinking diana was like oh my god i
2: would <laughs> died it would have been like the last scene in the birdcage you know when Diane Wees comes out as like a drag queen wow <laughs> all
0: right well on that note we're going to take one more quick break but when we're back we're just going to give our final thoughts on this season of the crown and what we think the palace is saying about it behind closed doors All right, everybody, we are back. And before we wrap up this season five crown spectacular episode of The Royal Report with our guest, H. Allen Scott, we just want to give our final thoughts on it and what we think Charles and the rest of the gang in the palace are thinking about this season. Uh, H. Allen Scott, let's start with you.
2: I think in the weeks before The Crown came out, there was all the press about sort of like how it was factually incorrect. And like now that we're getting into the more modern times, people lived, people remember living through these times and they're correcting the record oftentimes on sort of the dramatization of what The Crown did. And I feel like that was fully driven by the royal family, by Charles, in that it was fully that whole press about the the factual inaccuracies in, in the show was fully a royal hit to get people talking about something else to distract them probably from what book that's coming out. Oh, Prince Harry's book that's coming out. (laughs) So I, I feel like that was one big distraction from the show and the show people. Once people watch the series, this season, they're probably going to be like, Oh, it's just like every other season. It's cool. It's fun. It's everything that I like. They're not going to care about anything about the factual inaccuracies. So Yeah, I feel like the royal family doesn't love it. I feel like Harry and Meghan probably do love it. And Harry's book is going to be huge
1: that whole backlash was great advertising for The Crown, wasn't it? I mean, everybody knows that season five of The Crown is coming out now, right? Because it's been all over the front pages of the newspapers. So I think they will be absolutely delighted at Netflix and Peter Morgan at The Crown will be absolutely thrilled about all that phenomenal publicity, the likes of which money cannot buy. Um, but I think the concern at the Palace will be that when the last season came out, it did actually have a noticeable impact on Charles in the polls. say so he had a dip in the number of people who thought he would make a, a good king the month after um, the season aired so he's just had a big bounce after becoming king and he was kind of the leader that the nation turned to after the queen died and he had a massive 30 point swing in his favor in in polling in britain and i think they will be worried that this is going to come along and burst that bubble and remind everybody of why they fell out of favor with him originally
0: my thought on the matter is that the royals just make it worse. Every time they try to correct people and talk down to us and say the public doesn't know fact from fiction, every time they do that, they just keep drawing more attention to the show and they keep looking more and more petty. Like, stop looking like a TV show is this upsetting to you? It's a fictional TV show. Relax. Come on. Don't don't be this upset all the time. You should not be as the figurative head of state this bothered by a TV show. And every time you act this way, you act like you're petulant, that you're not stable, like your mom, that you just can't handle what's on Netflix. Come on, settle down.
2: There's worse stuff said in the tabloids. Like this is nothing. The Mm. stuff that they do in the, the crown is nothing compared to what's already out there. So like, why are you so pressed about this? Maybe work on the tabloids in your own backyard.
0: Also, as, as Jack has said many times on the show, the worst things that are revealed in this season are actually word for word taken from Diana's interviews. Or taken word for word from what Charles actually told his biographer Jonathan Dimbleby, either in his book or on his TV interview. So it's like the worst stuff was actually coming straight from the horse's mouth.
1: And there's loads they left out as well. I mean, there are so many like mega bombshells. I think probably the most damaging thing that Diana ever did not that she not that she did it for publication, but she did when she was preparing to do this big bombshell interview with Martin Bashir. She got a speech coach called Peter Settleland to kind of like film her talking and give her notes and feedback on the way she was coming across. And so she told him everything. She told him stuff she didn't tell to Andrew Morton, she didn't tell to Martin Bashir, she didn't tell to her friends. And it cannot be argued with because she's filmed, she's on camera saying it. And it's, you know, she says that, Philip gave Charles permission to have an affair and said, you know, if you're if you're not happy after five years, just go back to Camilla. She said that Charles told her that he refused to be the first Prince of Wales, never to have a mistress. Like, it is all there and it is so much worse than everything that the Crown has run. Like, the Crown could have put all that stuff in. You know, nobody would be able to argue with it if they did. If Diana said it, she's on camera. So, it it could have been so much worse. Um, so, yeah, I think that the Queen was always very good at just kind of rising above things, letting them pass, and showing the public that she wasn't bothered by them, like you say. And that's probably what the royals should do with this.
0: They should, but I don't think they're going to. <laughs> <I think> they're <laughs> they're going to keep leaking stories to the Daily Mail like they did last season. Last season, it felt like there were five stories a day in the Daily Mail that were clearly just like, oh no, Charles is mad again about this season. Oh no, Charles needs a a story written about how everything's wrong in this season and th- 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 nobody should watch the, it.
1: the male yeah, have also drawn I... attention to all the bits that they want people to ignore. So it's like they've taken all these like fleeting moments <laughs> that have gone in a second and like flashed them up in <laughs> massive neon lights. Like, Philip was rumored to have an affair. Like that's the bit you don't want people to know. And here you are just <laughs> saying it, like drawing everybody's attention to it.
0: Yeah. I mean, all that being said, w- what are your final thoughts on it? H. Allen Scott? I mean, I will
2: I will go wherever Milda goes. I will go wherever Leslie Manville goes. If they tell me to lay down and sleep for a week, I will. And That's how devoted I am to them. So yes, of course, I was already game before this even started. But I, this, like I said at the top of the show, this is my era. This is my moment. This is when my pop culture awareness first started in my life as a person. So this is... This season, yes, it's very good. And I'm very, I'm very, I'm very glad it exists in the world.
0: What about you, Jack?
1: Yeah, I think it's. I think it's good. I think Elizabeth Debicki is really great as Diana. She massively looks the part, but she also mm. has the mannerisms down pat. You know, this kind of the way that Diana always used to look down, while, or her, she would point her head down while her eyes looked up. So I think mm-hmm. I think there's loads to love in this series. My only real uh, criticism of it would be what we talked about with those few episodes that kind of went down a rabbit hole that we probably didn't really need to go down. And I didn't buy Philip. Those are my only two criticisms of it really but i think it's a hugely enjoyable show and people are going to love watching it it's going to i think it's going to be another you know runaway success in terms of people you know the number of people downloading it. i think people will bulk binge watch it in a day or a weekend this weekend is going to be like crown mayhem for people basically
0: yeah, I agree. I, I think there's a lot of interest in the show, partly driven by the folks who have told us not to watch the season, because it's not accurate. Um, and um, I'll just echo what you said. Some of these episodes going down rabbit holes, I wish they didn't exist. I wish they would have gotten uh, down and dirty and maybe a little bit uglier and shared some more of those details <laughs> you from Diana and Charles, <laughs> shared more of those details from Fergie and Andrew. I would have liked more of that stuff. I would. I really would have liked more of that I still enjoyed it very, very much, um, and and I. You know, other than that, I, I I don't think that's a reason not to watch the show. It just could have been filthier, it could have been uglier, <laughs> and I would have enjoyed that.
2: Oh, uh, Kristen, you are a girl <laughs> after my heart. You just anything in life is better if it's a little bit filthier.
0: Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, H. Allen Scott, thank you so much for being here with us today for this very special supersized episode of the Royal Report dedicated to season five of The Crown. You've been such a delight. We've loved having you here. I'm I
2: love both of you and I love the show and I love the Royals and anyone who is chatting about the royal anything Royals, I, yes, I'm, I'm a big, I'm a big royal person. And so thank you for having me. I really appreciate
1: it well thank you so 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 much and that is it for this episode of the royal report be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal
0: until next time i'm kristen meinzer
1: and i'm jack royston
0: thank you so much for listening everyone
1: and a curtsy to you all